This is Africa Digest. Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. Broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Magesi and I'm in studio with Onalin Sinse, Tracy Boomgaard, as well as Musaburi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Over 300 people have been killed over the past four weeks in Sudan's southwestern region of Darfur. Uganda's president, Yoweri Museveni, has suspended activities of the Democratic Governance Facility. And Zimbabwean police have arrested citizens in a small town of Gwanda for using toilets during the curfew. Right now, though, it is time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here is Onilin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. The International Criminal Court in The Hague has found the former commander of the Uganda-based Lord's Resistance Army guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Dominic Guguen was convicted of 61 charges, which include murder, torture, rape and sexual slavery. He faces a sentence of life imprisonment. The BBC's Andrew Hardin reports. Dominic Nguyen may have been as young as nine when he was abducted by Uganda's ferocious Lord's Resistance Army. Like many thousands of captive children, he was made to torture and to kill for the cult-like group. But over time, Ongwen rose through the LRA's ranks, and as a grown-up, he organised and committed more horrific crimes. Now, judges at the International Criminal Court have ruled that his childhood traumas do not free Ongwen of responsibility for his adult actions. Tunisia President Kais Syed is standing firm in his opposition to a cabinet reshuffle, suggesting he would not let the 11 new ministers take the oath of office. Tunisia's parliament last month had approved a cabinet reshuffle that deepened the conflict between the prime minister and the president. President Kais condemned the absence of women among the new ministers and said some likely new cabinet members may have conflict of interest. Amid the cabinet reshuffle, Last month, hundreds had gathered outside the parliament over social inequality and police abuses. A global alliance against COVID-19, COVAX, has donated a total of just over 16 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine to Nigeria. In a distribution forecast published on Wednesday, the coalition said the AstraZeneca vaccine doses would cover the first half of 2021. A total of 336 million doses were announced to be donated to over 120 countries. It said delivery of the vaccine in Nigeria is estimated to begin as of late February. 
A group of traditional and spiritual practitioners in South Africa say they have a mixture aimed at curing as well as preventing the COVID-19 infection is not a replacement for the recently procured vaccines by government. The M5 Medigroup from the Limpopo province, a traditional healers company, briefed the media about the medicine in the capital, Pretoria. The group says the medicine treats the COVID-19 virus and opens chest congestions for smooth breathing. It has been tested on more than 500 COVID patients since last year. The group's director and spokesperson, Mohale Mohale, says this is done in collaboration with a leading Safago Makhato Health Science University for scientific testing. Mohale says more research is still being conducted. This medicine, you took it uh, orally. It has to be warm. And we, we have actually administered it to more than, I think it's more than 500 people. People around uh, Rustenburg, they know about it. So we too, box everywhere, Limpopo, it's everywhere. So people have taken it one cup in the morning, one cup in the afternoon. And that's how it works. And we are quite confident, so it clears, it clears the, the, the chest, you start breathing easy gives you energy. If you don't have appetite, it gives you appetite. So, yeah. And lastly, Myanmar's military leader has blocked the public's access to Facebook, the only route to internet access for many people in the country. Officials say the social media platform was shut down to boost stability following a coup earlier this week. The country's defunct leader Aung San Suu Kyi remains detained by the military, with officials saying it is in response to election fraud. The BBC's Jonathan Head reports. Facebook is uniquely powerful in Myanmar because it became the kind of default national browser as it was offered without having to pay for data. When mobile telephones and the internet first arrived in Myanmar only uh, seven, eight years ago. And so Facebook has a huge penetration in Myanmar. And without it, it'll have a huge impact on everyone in terms of getting access to information. But it will allow the state to try to monopolize information as it did back in the old days of military rule more than 20 years ago. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Tsinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Sudan's official government news agency, as well as reliable military informants, say more than 300 people have been killed over the past four weeks in the country's southwestern region of Darfur. As James Shimanyula reports, the killing comes shortly after a joint United Nations-African Union peacekeeping force stopped patrolling in Darfur in the first week of last month following a vote by the UN Security Council to end its mandate there. In each and every one of us, there is a purpose and grace. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that, that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you. You can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to to live live your life by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose dose of Monday motivation motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life by Design, be the architect of your life. Only on Channel Africa, the African African Perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure 
full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. The Joint United Nations African Union Peacekeeping Force was established in 2007 to protect civilians and facilitate humanitarian assistance in Sudan's southwestern restive region of Darfur. Now that the peacekeepers have ended their mission in Darfur, people of the region, including internally displaced persons, are no longer protected. The absence of the peacekeepers has paved the way for a rise in violence across the full. Trusted informants say the violence relates to tribal clashes and militia attacks on villages and towns. To make matters worse, Darfur has been hit by renewed fighting involving rebel forces led by Abdel Wahid El Nur, who has refused to sign a peace agreement with the authorities in Sudan's capital Khartoum. Already, Sudan's official government news agency and reliable military informants have confirmed that that more than 300 people have been killed in various parts of Darfur and the killings continue. Following the killings, Sudan's Arabic-speaking Defense Minister Yassin Ibrahim has made the following short announcement. Plans are underway to send special troops to Darfur to protect the people from attacks. But Sudan's Defense Minister Yassin Ibrahim did not say when the troops are to be sent to Darfur. He specifically attributed the ongoing attacks to tribal conflicts caused by land disputes and made no comment on fresh fighting by rebel forces. Arabic-speaking prominent Darfur human rights defender Abdel Fattah Mohammed summarizes the current situation in Darfur. Since the peacekeepers stopped protecting people, the situation is now worse. Now Darfur lacks adequate security. Osman Abdirajab, official spokesman for internally displaced persons in Darfur, also speaking in Arabic, expounded on remarks made by Darfur human rights defender Abdel Fattah Mohammed. Attacks on ordinary civilians in villages and internally displaced persons have increased after peacekeepers stopped protecting people. The United Nations and African Union made a big mistake by withdrawing troops from Darfur. The Khartoum government has failed to protect its people in Darfur. That was the voice of Osman Abdirajab, official spokesman for internally displaced persons in Darfur. According to the United Nations, Darfur has undergone a bitter conflict that erupted in 2003, resulting in the death of an estimated 300,000 people. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the National Assembly finally has a final office. It was put in place after an election on Wednesday night. Made of seven members, the final office is led by Christophe Mboso Ngodia Puanga, the same one who headed the temporary office, becomes the final office speaker. He will be assisted by Jean-Marc Kabunt, both from President Felix Chisakedi's Sacred Union of the Nation. This gives him full control over the National Assembly. Jean Albumweze reports from Kinshasa. According to the results of Wednesday's elections, Christophe Mbonson Kodiapuanga was elected by 389 votes as the final office speaker. 
The former Speaker of the Temporary Office becomes now the National Assembly's new Speaker, replacing Janine Mabunda. Nkodia Puanga is from President Felix Chisekedi's Sacred Union of the Nation. He'll be assisted by Jean-Marc Kabund, the leader of the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, UDPS, which is Chisekedi's political party. Kabund was elected the first vice president, recovering so the position he lost in the Mabunda office following a motion. The new office of the National Assembly has made commitments, including parliamentary control, as Christophe Mbosonkodia mentions. I think I can reassure that we will ensure equality parliamentary control to make it possible whenever there is a need to reorient the action of our government to meet the expectations of our population. MPs from former President Joseph Kabila's Common Front for the Congo, FCC, denounced the cheatings and other irregularities that surrounded the elections. Francois Zekouye is from the People's Party for Reconstruction and Democracy, PPRD. The temporary office has the habit of inflating the numbers of those present in the room. At the time of the vote of the petition against Mabunda, at the time of the vote of the motion against the Prime Minister, and today, I've counted the absence, those who are absent, but counted the present. It's indeed this election that has marked the end of the extraordinary session of the National Assembly. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Uganda's president, President Yoweri Museveni, has directed the immediate suspension of the activities of the Democratic Governance Facility, the DGF, the largest pool of donor funding to non-governmental organizations in the country, of what he has described as financing of subversive activities. In a letter to several government anti-corruption units, Museveni says says he needs answers as to why and how the Ministry of Finance authorized the 100 million British pounds fund to operate illegally without the involvement of cabinet. To get some reaction on this, Channel Africa spoke to Henry Muguzi, uh, executive director of the Uganda's Alliance, uh, Uganda's Alliance for Min- Finance Monitoring, a coalition of civil society activists championing the agenda in political financing. I think we expected it. You, you need to understand that uh, we have been uh, this facility has been in place for now about seven years. At the time DGF came, uh, civic organizing in Uganda was quite weak. So when DGF comes, they get to activate, organize, mobilize, but also support civic organizing. It has taken about six years. Uh, about a year ago, it became apparent that the state had gotten very uh, uh, discomfortable at the, at the impact 
civil society was making in terms of uh, raising the awareness of citizenry, uh, getting to empower them uh, to ask those difficult questions, but also in the, in the kind of thinking that uh, the ideas that were being brought on board. And therefore, over the past uh, one year, government launched a, a deliberate onslaught against civic organizing. They have been closing and freezing accounts, bank accounts on, of a number of the vocal NGOs. They have been arresting, detaining active and visible uh, and vocal civil society leaders. And therefore, we knew that beyond just uh, freezing accounts, uh, but also uh, arresting us individually, they have to target something that would give them what you can, what you can call a multiplier effect. And therefore, it does not come as a surprise to us. Uh, we knew this was going to happen, and we, we expect even much worse going forward. Now, the president says this fund was being operated illegally. How do you respond to that? I think the president is misinformed. Because this is a basket fund of European donor organizations, which they would have ordinarily been operating under the, their own auspices in the democratic uh, circles. I give you an example. If the embassy of, of, of Austria uh, would want to support civil society organizations, they would not have to seek the, the approval of the state because this is within the realm of what has been agreed upon uh, bilaterally. And therefore, this has been the position. I think the president, when you read this letter, the letter was written at the beginning of January. So the letter has been there. The president wants action to be done, but there are legal implications. And therefore, it is not true that the, the facility was constituted, constituted illegally because the According to our laws, it is the Secretary to the Treasury that signs on to this. And for, for the President to demand and require that he also signs to approve is to, do, to, to, to relegate himself to now a technical person because at his level, he does not sign this. This, according to our laws, must be signed by the technical person. And, and the technical person that is mandated by law is the Secretary to the Treasury, who is also the permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Finance, Planning and Economic Development. And therefore, he did what... Uh, the law demands. And therefore, I think the president is acting out of anger. You understand that in the election we have just concluded, the president has uh, been voted uh, against by the people of the central region, which is the biggest ethnic group, but also supported by, voted, voted against by the, uh, the people of uh, eastern region, a, a few of them. And therefore, this dwindling sub-electoral support I think has come as a surprise to him and he understands now that it is as a result of the of the civic awareness that we have been pumping towards these citizens that they are beginning to understand that uh, they are living under dictatorship and they have to get rid of this. So I, but I think, the president yeah, but, oh, says oh, oh, oh. the permanent secretary to treasury has actually colluded with the fund administrators to make sure that uh, this fund was assigned. Uh, how do you respond to that? I think the president is misinformed because there is no collusion. The secretary to the treasury, who is also the permanent secretary to the minister of finance, is given powers by law to sign on to these diplomatic accords and, and uh, of this nature. And therefore, he acted within the law. And if you have read the, uh, the, the, the response of the minister of finance himself, he came out and said the reason he has not taken action against uh, this letter, even when it was written, 
at the beginning of January, now we are in, in February, is because the president is not being informed on certain legal implications and underpinnings of these actions. Now, what do you think should happen as a matter of agency now that uh, this facility has been cancelled with immediate effect? I think uh, for us as civil society actors, we need to very quickly organize and and come out with ways uh, of resilience um, about how we can continue with doing what we've been doing, not with the support of foreigners, but I think locally, because also locally we can uh, we can get our we can, we can tap into the local philanthropists to support our activities. But I think also beyond doing what we are doing, I think the time has come now to rally every citizen because I can tell you for a fact that uh, that the suspending of the democratic governance facility touches a, a broad uh, spectrum of citizens. There have been a number of citizens that used to, 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 to think that government was uncomfortable only by the organizations that were holding it to account those who are advocating for human rights, for democracy and, uh, and, and, and corruption. But now it is clear that there is a, a, a protracted uh, uh, exercise and, and, and onslaught against any form of civic or citizen organizing that no citizen is safe anywhere. And therefore, I think we need to look around and see how else we can access funds and civil society organizations. And that was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was Henry Muguzi, Executive Director of Uganda's Alliance for Finance Monitoring, talking to Kumbelo Muntelele. Are you feeling exhausted and run down even though the year has just begun? Well, you are not alone. These could be symptoms of pandemic fatigue, and this is according to Abdurman Kenny, the Mental Health Portfolio Manager at the pharmaceutical company in South Africa, Pharma Dynamics. Kenny says among the primary reasons for feeling mentally drained uh, during the pandemic is being in a constant state of high alert, which takes its toll on our energy levels over a prolonged period. He joins us on the line to discuss this further. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, good, good afternoon, uh, Samora. Good afternoon to your listeners. Now, what exactly is pandemic fatigue and how does one recognize the signs? Uh, so, like you said, uh, we are in a, a constant state of, of fight or flight. Um, and this is a mechanism that can be very useful um, in dealing with stressful situations in the short term. Uh, but the pandemic has been going on for almost a year now, uh, which can be extremely draining, um, both physically, uh, emotionally, and mentally. Um, and some of the, the early signs of, of burnout include feeling uh, withdrawn, uh, difficulty sleeping or concentrating, uh, loss of appetite, low mood or feelings of helplessness uh, during the pandemic. Uh, so it's important because if these symptoms of burnout do persist for an extended period of time, um, it can lead to a mental condition such as depression, um, anxiety or mood disorder, in which case it's important to, to seek professional help. Uh, so in order to avoid this, it's therefore important for us to put strategies in place um, to work towards a healthier and, and balanced lifestyle. And is the situation particularly exhausting for those who are starting the year off still working or studying remotely? Uh, yeah, so, so for those who are, are working from home, 
Um, it does come with various challenges as well, um, with us trying to constantly juggle various tasks outside of work, um, like multiple errands, uh, homeschooling for those individuals who have children uh, at home, uh, with many of us feeling like we have been pushed to do more than ever before. Um, for those of us who are constantly on, on video calls as well, that can also be um, um, draining, as it has been shown that video calls can be uh, more draining than, than uh, face-to-face meetings. And how has the constant bombardment of information around COVID-19 on TV, radio, social media, and other forms of media contributed to the mental exhaustion experienced by so many people? So with, when it comes to, to information, we are in an information age. And, and like, we, like you said, we are constantly bombarded with, with various sources of information from various media sources. Um, and not all of them are from, um, from reliable sources. So our responsibility is to make sure that the information that we do have comes from, from reliable sources um, so that we're not... Uh, unnecessarily bombarded but with, with um, incorrect information. Right, and uh, what is the likelihood of the pandemic fatigue being induced uh, by reckless behaviour in some people, such as ignoring or abandoning precautionary health measures altogether? Uh, so like, like we mentioned earlier, this is a very stressful period for, for everyone um, and different people react to, to stressful situations in, in different uh, manners. Uh, one of those uh, ways can be uh, reckless behavior, like you like you mentioned. Um, and it's important for us to to bear in mind that if you are going to be uh, reacting in in a in such a manner, um, you're not only putting yourself in danger, uh, but also those loved ones around you as well. Uh, so it's important to to make sure um, that we do maintain our our discipline in in maintaining and keeping everyone safe. Uh, during this time. Right, and uh, if one finds themselves suffering from pandemic fatigue, what coping mechanisms can help them stay at the course? Uh, there are many things that one one can do um, in order to combat these symptoms, uh, but they can all be summarized as trying to live a healthy and balanced lifestyle uh, despite the restrictions that we currently find ourselves in. Uh, so some of these will include a healthy diet, uh, drinking enough water, maintaining healthy sleeping patterns, um, and exercising on a, on a regular basis. Um, but if these symptoms do persist for weeks on end, uh, then it might be uh, time to speak to a professional. Um, and we do have a toll-free helpline, uh, which is manned by, by SADAC counselors, uh, SADAC being the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. Um, and they are available from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. seven days a week. Um, and if I can just share the, the number with everyone, uh, it is 0800-205-026. Um, that is the, the SADAC helpline for those who, who do feel that they need to speak to a, a professional. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Samora. And that was Abdurrahman Kenny, the Mental Health Portfolio Manager at Pharma Dynamics in South Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? 
You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalun Yenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Zimbabwean police have come under fire for arresting citizens in a small town of Guana for using toilets during curfew. Guana, which is 550 kilometers south of Harare, is one of the small towns where community toilets are still being used 40 years after independence. For a country with sanitation problems, the lockdown and curfew has put the already deprived citizens under pressure. More from our correspondent, Simon Muchemwa, reporting from Harare in Zimbabwe. At a time when Zimbabweans are beginning to feel the effects of COVID-19 lockdown and curfew, the police have begun arresting people for using community toilets. A number of people in Gwanda have to date been arrested for the same crime and asked to pay fines of at least 60 US dollars for defying the lockdown and curfew laws. The Gwanda mayor, Njabulo Siziva, confirmed but refused to reveal names of those who have been arrested so far. While the events in Gwanda may seem insignificant, human rights bodies have revealed this could be just a tip of an iceberg. Channel Africa spoke to Gwanda mayor who confirmed the arrests. Gwanda location or Gwanda township is the, the matter for Gwanda is the Makokowa for, 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 for Gwanda, where people use the public toilets. Uh, they don't have uh, operation uh, in their houses. Most of the houses do not do not have toilets in there. I mean, they do not have toilets in their houses. And as such, what we are saying is, uh, it is only maybe a matter of a person explaining to a police detective, no, I'm going to the toilet, and knowing very well what the situation is like uh, in Jaunda or in Wadfo. Uh, I always think uh, uh, police details should be in a position to listen, understand, and uh, maybe encourage. Uh, you, you, you rush. It's already uh, uh, after a uh, few uh, time frame. You rush, you come back home. Uh, rather than uh, uh, failing even to give an ear that maybe nature would have called and this person is praised, this person has got challenges. That was Jabulo Siziva, the mayor of Gwanda, speaking on the phone to Channel Africa. Meanwhile, Zimbabwean police have revealed an average of 3,000 people countrywide are being arrested daily for various offenses including non-wearing of masks, public gatherings for beer drinking and illegal movements. The report of arrests in Gwanda came as a shock, hence the Zimbabwean Human Rights Association, Zimrights, has blasted the police for punishing people who are already deprived. Zika Maibere, director of the Zimrights, had this to say. I think uh, first of course is the issue of the enforcement of uh, lockdown regulation, which is not paying attention to the circumstances. So we have uh, produced a policy brief in which we are saying the police should avoid enforcing lockdown rules in a manner that, you know, puts people in danger. 
like the idea of also arrest of people for minor things, like like you're saying, going to the toilet, and then they arrest them for that and lock them up. It means they're already also putting them in danger. Then secondly, the issue of the fact that uh, these are people who are really not committing a crime because they are not out there for fun. These are people who are, I mean, this is a call of necessity. The living circumstances uh, of these people are unique in the sense that they are actually deprived of the basic right, I mean, the right to health, clean sanitation, and, and things like that, access to a toilet and all those things. Zim rights had been so busy from March last year when the country imposed the first lockdown to date owing to what is now termed human rights abuses during the lockdown. Cases such as extortion, bribes and corruption have also surfaced, but of worry is the community arrest of people even if they are not committing crimes. For a country that is still struggling with cholera and typhoid outbreaks owing to water shortages, arrest of people for using toilets during a curfew comes as a shock, Mayor Jabolo said. To be frank, to be honest, let's look at uh, the economic situation uh, of our country. We, we, we have a lot of challenges. It's not a thing that we can be doing overnight. It's not a thing that we can be doing uh, on a day. But the reality is, uh, in the program of Fija Under Development, we are saying, let's we destroy all one-roomed houses and make it a point that people are housed where a house has got water, where a house has got a, a toilet. In Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Mchema. Now time for your latest news headlines. Here's Onelin Tsinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Over 300 people have are said to have been killed over the past four weeks in Sudan's southwestern region after four. The International Criminal Court in The Hague has found the former commander of the Uganda-based Lord Resistance Army guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And India will provide humanitarian assistance to Myanmar in the fight against coronavirus. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. With the South African government vaccination rollout plan delivered to the public in early January, the last few weeks have seen a flood of scrutiny and reservation from the private sector, opposition parties and the general public at large. The target of vaccinating 40 million South Africans before the end of 2021 has put into question the state's ability to fund the critical endeavour. CEO of medical aid scheme ProfMed, Craig Comrie, says that vaccines are critical to our fight to save lives, but he expressed concern over the idea that private medical schemes should be required to fund double the cost of their members' vaccinations by also funding the doses of an uninsured South African for every member that they vaccinate. Combrie explains. I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, I think we may actually get all the vaccine supplies, but to actually vaccinate what seems to be almost 300,000 people a day is not, has not been done anywhere else in the world. So um, for it to actually be achieved is going to be um, a miracle, but we must do what we can. We certainly need the vaccines to go as, and be spread as far as it can be.
Um, I might just correct you on the 40 million number. I mean, we know mm-hmm. that there's 60 million people in South Africa. 40 million is effectively the 67% to reach herd immunity. Um, however, out of that, we exclude uh, children under 15. And then you sure. get to a number of 27.5 million. So the request that's been made to medical schemes, unfortunately, is to pay um, effectively almost 35% of the vaccine rollout plan, while corporates will pitch in with some and then the government will pick up the rest. And so we're saying, look, we're not too sure why medical schemes are targeted in terms of a, a disproportionate funding of these vaccines, but we do want to contribute. We certainly want to contribute to the success of the rollout of the, of the vaccines. Craig, take us through what the initial costs covered by medical schemes are. So when you talk about um, initial costs, so um, uh, medical schemes obviously are governed by Medical Schemes Act and and the benefits that they push out every year. And these are registered rules. And so we bound to both those aspects in terms of what we can fund. In fact, we aren't allowed to in any means, shape or form, use members' monies, which are effectively in trust. We can't use it for anybody other than members themselves. Sure. Um, It's probably likened to the fact uh, that you've got your bank account with a certain bank. Um, That bank can't volunteer your savings to fund expenses for anybody else other than the ones that you've approved. And so medical schemes are in exactly the same situation. So it's very difficult for us to volunteer the members' funds to even vaccinate uninsured or people that don't have medical schemes. But we are trying to find a way to actually contribute So there are a number of of solutions that we absolutely support in terms of contributing to funding um, vaccines for those that cannot afford it. Now, talk us through some of those suggested mechanisms which could, of course, uh, support the vaccine funding. Yeah, I think um, one that uh, politicians would avoid and what we we don't want to see is is just the tax being being levied. Um, but it is an option. It's not a favoured option, but it is an alternative in terms of in terms of getting the funds right. Maybe a once-off tax. I think it was Judge Dennis Davis that actually um, had suggested that this would be an appropriate funding mechanism. I think the other mechanism that I certainly favour is the one that is the solidarity fund. It's a mechanism that has used was used last year very successfully. In fact, the Solidarity Fund last year raised 3.3 billion rand, and it is um, quite smartly, it seems to be the amount of missing funds that uh, the Minister of Health is asking medical schemes to fund as well. So we would suggest that individuals out of their own are, are generous and understand the circumstances of those that cannot afford, and we should call on that social solidarity spirit to actually do this on a voluntary basis towards the, uh, a mechanism like the Solidarity Fund. And uh, finally, have you been able to engage um, uh, those uh, decision makers here, um, especially around your, your dissatisfaction with uh, um, the contributions um, expected from medical schemes? Yeah, so I can actually confirm that we're not the only one that has this view. I guess we're the ones that mm, are raising, mm. raising the voice into the space. Um, everybody wants to contribute. We just want to do it in, in the right way without jeopardizing the existing contracts that we have of trust with our members. So we do want an alternative view to actually prevail. There are 70 odd medical schemes in the country, and I guess you would get um, an equal amount of alternative solutions um, on the table. I think the preferred solution at the moment is one where that social solidarity principle is almost entrenched in a regulatory space. So um, there's talk of them upping an artificial price in terms of what they call single exit pricing for the medicines, which effectively still takes members' monies away from the medical schemes and is used for the same effect for, for uninsured uh, vaccines. 
So there are a number of suggestions, and, uh, and, and we actually need to reach a point. I think we've already got some vaccines in the country. Probably come the end of this week or early next week, people are, are, are wanting to already obtain those vaccines and want the schemes to pay for them. So we need to have clear decisions in the next few days in terms of what is happening. That was Craig Comrie, CEO of a medical aid scheme in South Africa, ProfMed. He was on the line to Zakona Meso. Zambezi River Authority Council of Ministers has expressed satisfaction at the ongoing development of the 2,400-megawatt Batoka Gorge hydroelectrical scheme and rehabilitation works in on the Kariba Dam. The two multi-billion-dollar projects are jointly owned by the governments of Zambia and Zimbabwe. Hilda Kakelwa reports. Opening the session, Zimbabwe's Energy and Power Development Minister and outgoing chairperson Zemo Soda commended the authority for having timely concluded the public disclosure process for the environmental and social impact assessment study on the Batoka project. He said it is most pleasing to note that the report will be submitted to Zambia Environmental Management Agency and Environmental Management Agency of Zimbabwe by mid next month. He also commended the authority for convening the meeting under the new normal. The 38th Council of Ministers meeting was held virtually due to COVID-19 conditions. Honorable ministers, ladies and gentlemen, in addition to ensuring the continued existence and safe operation of Kariba Dam, you will agree with me that of paramount interest to the two contracting states is the development of additional water storage and power generation infrastructure under the 2,400-megawatt-rated Batoka Gorge Hydroelectric Scheme. It is encouraging to learn that most of the preparatory works for the implementation of the scheme have been completed. This includes the updating of the 1993 engineering feasibility studies and the undertaking of the environmental and social impact assessment studies which have culminated in the production of a draft SIA report. In line with the environmental legal framework of the two contracting states and international best practice, the SIA report was placed in the public domain in March 2020 as part of the public disclosure process, and this was concluded Uh, on the 25th of January uh, this year. For his part, Zambia's Energy Minister Matthew Zunkua spoke on the importance of the two projects to the economic development of the two countries and the region. He expressed confidence that despite participants not sitting together in one room, as has been the norm, the deliberations will be fruitful. It is my singular honor and privilege to welcome you to the 38th Council of Ministers virtual meeting. At this meeting, we are expected yet again to deliberate on important matters that help to guide the operations of the Zambezi River Authority, an organization owned by the two contracting states for the common purpose of harnessing the social economic benefits presented by the mighty Zambezi River. It is therefore my fervent hope and trust that the the deliberations of this meeting will be fruitful.
NZRA Chief Executive Officer Engineer Mnyaradzi Monodowafa informed the meeting that following the 2020-2021 rainfall projections by both local and regional weather experts of normal to above normal rainfall for the Zambezi River Basin, the authority has allocated 30 billion cubic meters of water to be shared equally by Zambia Electricity Supply Corporation and Zimbabwe Power Company for the 2021 power generation at Kariba. He said the authority shall conduct quarterly reviews of the allocations, giving room for increased allocation should the water levels increase further. And in a communique issued at the end of the session, the ministers expressed gratitude to the Africa Legal Support Facility for the provision of legal, financial and technical advisory services necessary for the development of the project. On the rehabilitation of the Kariba Dam, the meeting agreed that though early delays in contracting the works were compounded by some technical challenges and more recently COVID-19 resulting in a cumulative delay of two years, it is possible to complete the project within the time frame due to the modified designs of the spillway refurbishment. The ministers commended ZRA for its ongoing efforts towards improving the well-being of the communities that were displaced during the construction of the Kariba Dam. Various projects have been implemented in the areas of irrigation schemes, water supply, health and education facilities which include staff housing. The meeting approved the ZRA's 2021 budget of more than 71 billion US dollars. Now it's time for your latest economics news. Here's Tracy Boomgard. Thank you, Samora. African Ministers of Finance, Planning and Economic Development will hold their 33rd session to discuss industrialization in Africa. The conference will be held virtually from the 17th to the 23rd of March under the theme Africa's Sustainable Industrialization and Diversification in the Digital Era in the Context of Coronavirus Pandemic. Discussions on Africa's industrialization are relevant, coming on the heels of the launch of the African Continental Free Trade Area. This is according to UNECO Director of Regional Integration and Trade, Stephen Karingi. The main element of this year's theme is the recognition of the need for African countries to achieve rapid economic growth. An investigation into allegations of price gouging has been launched by South Africa's National Consumer Commission relating to garlic and ginger. The companies involved are Food Lovers Market, the Spa Group, Pick and Pay, the ShopRite Group, Boxer Superstores, Cambridge Foods and Woolworths. The NCC says the investigation is not limited to these suppliers. They are urging consumers to monitor the market and where they suspect excessive price increase to file complaints with the Commission. The investigation follows an outcry by consumers regarding alleged excessive prices of both products by various suppliers. 
Many South African households are struggling to pay their bills, while unsecured debt is on average 32% higher than five years ago. According to the Debt Busters' fourth quarter debt index, debt-to-income ratio is at its highest level in years as a result of the impact of COVID-19 and lockdowns. Head of Debt Busters, Bene Sager, says borrowing has increased by 32% to supplement current eroding incomes. Amina Akram reports. The latest debt index shows consumers are under enormous strain to repay their debt. This despite payment holidays and successive repo rate reductions given by the Reserve Bank last year. The index, which was published as part of the Debt Awareness Month, found that real incomes shrunk across all income brands and in some cases up to 20% compared to 2016 levels. Furthermore, consumers are using unsecured debt to repay their debt shortfalls. South African bus company Patco has announced plans to retrench 214 employees. In a statement, the company says, like most businesses, it has been severely impacted by the coronavirus pandemic and subsequent lockdown regulations imposed by government. During the lockdown, the company was forced to scale down operations and only transported essential workers, while private hire and commercial contracts could not be operated. The regulations further required buses to carry no more than 50% of their licensed capacity, thus significantly reducing the revenue per trip. The company says it has been engaging with government together with the South African Bus Operators Association since March 2020 to request financial relief. Three Air Namibia board members have resigned, accusing the government of interference. The resignations come after the board averted the airline's closure last week. An international company, Challenge Air, took it to court over a debt which the government refused to provide for Air Namibia to pay. The board, however, struck an agreement to settle without the government's involvement. One U.S. dollars trading at 379.81 Nigerian Naira, 10.83 Botswana Pula, 108.87 Kenyan Shilling, and 21.42 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollars trading at 5.36 Brazilian Hail, 75.97 Russian Ruble, 72.89 Indian Rupee, 6.45 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.94 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 73 pence to the British pound and 83 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,793 and platinum at $1,090 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $58.53 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now for your latest sport, here's Musubudi Makura.
Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with cricket news, rain dominated the final session of play on day one of the second test between South Africa and Pakistan at the Pindi Cricket Stadium in Rawalpindi on Thursday, leaving the hosts on 145 for three, and uh, the match evenly poised going into Friday's day two. Now, Pakistan had just began wrestling back control of the match through Baba Azam and Fawad Alam as their unbeaten partnership of 123 took the comfortably to tea after they had been reduced to 22 for 3 during the morning session. However, rain came down during the tea break with the empires finally calling play for the day after a final check shortly after 1.30pm Central African time. Now play will now resume at 6.45am Central African time on Friday morning. Meanwhile, Kejaf Maharaj picked up a two wickets as South Africa claimed the spoils in the opening session of the second test. The South African left-arm spinner found plenty of assistance from a dry surface as Pakistan went into lunch under pressure on 63-43. He shares his thoughts on just how the surface is likely to change in the next coming days. Everyone was a bit confused as to what to expect, but it, it seems pretty hard from uh, obviously being there on the last 60 overs and obviously with the moisture around it might it might bind it tomorrow come to, um, might bind it together come tomorrow uh, with regards to the heavy roller or the normal roller being on so it's a bit it's a bit hard to say what it's going to pan out i think tomorrow at the end of the day we'll have probably a more clearer idea and understanding as to uh, what the picket uh, the wicket's going to uh, deteriorate if it is going to deteriorate going forward on to football news, Sofani Rahimi was the two-goal hero for defending champions Morocco, who produced one of their best displays of the tournament to beat the hosts Cameroon 4-0 on Wednesday to reach the final of the Total Africa Nations Championship Chan Tournament. Now the Atlas Lions kept alive their hopes on retaining the title as they breezed past the indomitable Lions in the semi-final game at the Limbe Stadium. Meanwhile, Mali defeated Guinea 5-4 in a penalty shootout in the first semi-final of the day. The match had ended um, goalless in the 90 minutes and went into extra time when no goals were scored. Sunday's final between Mali and Morocco take place at the Amaju Ahiju Stadium in Yaoundé. Morgini will play Cameroon in the third and fourth place playoff at the Ramifikin Stadium in Douala on Saturday. South Africa's annual Two Oceans Ultra Marathon has been cancelled for the second year in a row with organisers announcing earlier today that it was scratched due to COVID-19 concerns. Now, while sports events are allowed under South Africa's current Level 3 regulations, mass participation events remained suspended. The marathon usually attracts nearly 30,000 runners for the popular 56-kilometre and the 21-kilometre races in Cape Town, not only from South Africa but around the world. But the Two Oceans is currently limited to 500 participants based on the government regulations for outdoor events. Now, the organisers had considered postponing the event up until later this year, but that idea was scrapped. Last year, the Two Oceans Marathon was cancelled for the very first time since it was launched back in 1970. 
And uh, finally, uh, in Tennis News, world number one, or rather two, Rafael Nadal says doubts remain over his fitness ahead of next week's Australia Open. Nadal pulled out of Spain's ATP Cup title against Australia on Tuesday with a lower back problem and despite improvement, says he is still far away from the level required to play at this year's first Grand Slam tournament of the year. Now, Nadal sits uh, level with Roger Federer on 20 Grand Slam titles and uh, with the Swiss not taking part in Melbourne, after any surgery, the Spaniard will have the chance to become the all-time major winner or rather record holder in the men's game for the very first time in history. Those are sports news at the Sawa. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. Right now, though, it's time for us to take it to the top of the hour with Amanda Black's Amazon. We'll see you later.
falling, tripping, I'm falling. Tell me I'm nothing. Don't care what you're saying. I'm 